Fagan decided, look, I got more in common with the Filipino brown people than I do with my white lieutenant. And um, he arranged with a insurrecto, insurrectionist officer, who was a leader of the Philippine Liberation Army, to meet him at night, and he escaped. They had a horse there for him, and he rode off into the, into the jungle to join the guerrillas, as did 15 other Buffalo soldiers. I want to tell a story of black workers um, and how they struggled with the cumbersome nature of Title VII, but from their perspective. Harris Parson never got a promotion. Um, he drove taxis for the rest of his life. Today, we bring you two more stories for Black History Month. From former auto worker Jonathan Melrod, the fascinating story of David Fagan, who joined the U.S. Army to escape Jim Crow discrimination and was sent to the Philippines, where not only did he and his fellow black soldiers suffer from endemic racism in the military, but found that they were fighting on the wrong side of the U.S. war of Philippine conquest. Then, Labor History Today correspondent Alan Weirdak talks with Caleb Smith, a Ph.D. student at Tulane, about an important Title VII discrimination lawsuit involving Harris Parson, a black Korean war vet who went to work at Kaiser Aluminum and Chemical in Bogalusa, Louisiana. And, on Labor History in Two... The year was 1987, marking the death of Edgar Daniel Nixon. Nixon's leadership in the struggle for black labor and civil rights spanned decades. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Welcome to Your Rights of Work. Chris Garlock here with Ed Smith. Our final segment is, uh, this guest came to my attention. Somebody sent me this piece he'd written. It was called Forgotten, an African-American soldier turned rebel leader in the Philippines. And there's an interesting piece about a guy named David Fagan. And I, you know, a guy who thinks I know my my labor history, I'd never yeah. heard the name David Fagan. And I had to so look I, it up too. Yeah. So I said, I got to have this guy on. Uh, John Melrod is the author of Fighting Times, Organizing on the Frontlines of the Class War. Welcome to Your Rights at Work, John. Thanks so much. And I feel right at home, both, <laughs> as, a, both as a longtime UAW member and as a kid who grew up in D.C., Oh, did not know either of those. All right. Well, we've got the right guy in the right show. So you, you got to who who was David Fagan? And, and this is and you have we have like a 10 minute segment here. So we're just going to scratch the surface. We'll probably have to do another show. But get, give people just a, a thumbnail of who this guy was. Fascinating story. Yeah, I'll try to do that because it is a fascinating story. And it's particularly relevant. Just say this quickly. In a time when you have uh, <clears throat> really these white 
nationalist gover go uh, governors like DeSantis, who were getting rid of, you know, African-American classes, you know, thank goodness you guys are talking about African-American history with this piece on Fagan. And, you know, Fagan himself, he was uh, he had been busted up in quite a few union strikes. And one of the reports I read that he had scars all up and down his body. When you think about it in the late 1890s in Florida, it was an early union days. Um, and he grew up as a child of slaves and looked around and said, the life in Tampa isn't offering much. I'm using a sledgehammer to, you know, knock out phosphate for a mining company. And, I, you know, I got Jim Crow. I got chain gangs all around me and I'm trying to figure out something better. And he came in contact with Buffalo Soldiers, which were the black soldiers that had been used, you know, in the Civil War, but after the Civil War to sort of expand the United States colonialism. And they were feared. And they had they had attitude. When they walked down the street, Fagan said they held their heads up high. Nobody could tell them what to do. That's he said, I'm gonna be one of those guys. So he went off with high hopes and dreams you know, of being a Buffalo soldier. But he found himself ended up in the Philippines. And they told him, you guys are going there to get rid of some Tagalog, you know, vicious ruler that we're going to overthrow. Well, the story quickly, that, that facade fell apart. And it turned out he was part of a colonial force that had come in to take over the Philippines. I'm no shocked, surprise. Jonathan. I'm shocked. Yeah. Right. That's right. Who knew? I mean, who knew we ever had nation building in history? So, <clears throat> you know, it's funny because because it was uh, President McKinley, and it was really a product of the much earlier, <laughs> excuse me, manifest destiny, right. expand democracy and Christianity. Now, McKinley forgot that it was already a Catholic nation because of the Spanish. I mean, that's how <clears throat> blindfolded our guys, you know, the leadership of the United States political class was. But Fagan got sent over with a regiment of 2,100 Buffalo soldiers. And they soon found themselves back in the same position that he had been in in Tampa. He was a second-class soldier. You know, he had to do all the Black soldiers had to do the jobs that no white soldiers wanted to do. And worse than that, they were pushed to the front of all the battle lines and they were suffering the worst casualties. Sounds a bit like Vietnam, maybe. I'm flashing mm -hmm. on that. That's exactly or, flashing yeah. on that and, and, and World War II, too. And right? World War II. Yes, World War II. Absolutely. That's what my wife's father was in World War II and he was always the recon guy. Yeah. In the middle well, of winter, in the dark. Well, and there you go. And you had these West Pointers, you know, his 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 commanding officer was a West Point guy who, who you know, had been filled with propaganda and, you know, was a racist as racist as could be. And Fagan stood up to him and wouldn't tolerate, you know, th this kind of racist treatment. And that put them into conflict. And his uh, his commanding officer his commanding officer sentenced him to 30 days of hard labor and fined him a month's pay. Well, you know, th they weren't making anything to begin with. 
and you know, 30 days in in the in the brig, he decided basically to hell with this. And the Filipino liberation fighters, they were really fighting to liberate their country. When the US got there, they had already established a constitution, a government, you know, there was no need for the great white father to come in and tell the Filipinos how to run the islands. But of course they did in trying to expand the US empire. And Fagan started seeing materials posted by um, Filipinos that said, don't fight for the same white racists that treat you as second class citizens at home. We're part of your same struggle. And I'll never forget during the anti-war movement, seeing a picture of black soldiers in the jungle in Vietnam with a signpost from the Vietnamese saying, black soldiers, don't fight for the same KKK clique that sent you here. You're on our side. And so Fagan decided, look, I got more in common with the Filipino brown people than I do with my white lieutenant. and. Um, he arranged with a insurrecto, insurrectionist officer who was a leader of the Philippine Liberation Army to meet him at night and he escaped. They had a horse there for him and he rode off into the, into the jungle to join the guerrillas, as did 15 other Buffalo soldiers. So it wasn't a lone event. There was disgruntlement widely, you know, throughout the ranks. In fact, they... Going back in history, there was a huge debate in the African-American community. Even then, was this colonialism? Were we being exploited to expand U.S. colonialism? So it was a real debate. And Black soldiers were writing home letters about how they were being treated. So Fagan went over, and he became such a distinguished guerrilla fighter that his loyal troops refused to call him captain. They called him El General, the general. <laughs> so let me let me, uh, let me just uh, break there. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking uh, with John Melrod about the uh, life and legacy of this amazing guy, David Fagan. Uh, this, of course, is Black History Month. Um, and he, he penned this great piece called Forgotten an African-American Soldier Turned Rebel Leader in the Philippines. I, I just love it. Ed and I both loved this when when we we stumble across these stories of of you know we we are always looking for the labor angle. There's always a labor angle, but you know, we we're always surprised. Uh, Chuck Clay is still on the line with us, and Chuck, I just I wanted to give you an opportunity to jump in here if you've got a question or a comment, brother. I, I, had you heard of Donald Fagan of, of David Fagan? I have not. I'm, I'm reading him on my other computer right now. Um, uh, unfortunately, I have not heard of him, but. Uh, uh, I know of the struggle, <laughs> and you know that's pretty universal, actually. And you know, I like the analogy between uh, his his struggles earlier and the uh, Vietnam War. Uh, you know, I think that's most apropos. You know, uh, and and it's still going on. You know, I you know I, I had uh, relatives in the Navy in the seventies and who were part of the uh, on, on the aircraft carrier that were part of a rebellion. Uh, because of the vicious racism uh, that the U.S. Navy had going on, you know, and um, it, uh, you know, it's 
and the struggle continues as uh, you know we we're in the struggle uh you know and uh you know, uh hopefully we'll have you know people who will be the next vanguard uh to come up young people that will take up the banner and uh, educate themselves despite uh uh, uh junior trump uh, governor DeSantis, um you know trying to uh, squash any type of uh, educational uh, uh realization about black history uh, before i go to uh, add, before i go to add and i'll come to you in a second but but to your point chuck and and, and to your point jonathan on that i i will say i take a I take a glass half full. When when people like DeSantis go after the history, that says to me that we're doing something right. Yeah. Right? If, if people weren't paying attention to it, if it wasn't important, they'd ignore it, right? But the fact that they're targeting it says to me, uh-huh, we got something here that they don't want people to know. And the, as, as you know, you know, the more you try and hide stuff, the more people want to know about it. That's, that's, my, that's my glass half full. So, Ed, I know you so, want to get in on this. So on that point real quick, my 93-year-old mom, is uh, ranting and raving on Facebook about uh, <laughs> the culture wars uh, that DeSantis is putting her through. And she, she grew up in uh, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. She's a diehard liberal. And she's, uh, you know, she's still fighting, fighting the good fight. But, you know, um, my labor angle on this is the Tagalogs. So we have uh, brothers and sisters uh, in the nursing movement in California. And there's been a couple of hospitals that have, supervisors going around telling uh, these Filipino nurses that they can't speak Tagalog uh, to each other on the floors and they have to fight back. And so the discrimination is still around. And, uh, you know, it, it, discrimination is discrimination, no matter race, creed, color, sex. Uh, it's, it's about intimidation. It's about, you know, keeping my piece of the pie. You can't have it. And so if I can tell nurses not to speak that language, that keeps control over them. And I wondered if you had any comments on that, Jonathan. Well, it's interesting because my wife is Filipina. <laughs> so I may have to tell her she can't speak Tagalog. Oh, good, so luck. good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. Good luck with that. I'll tell her to switch to Visayan, which is another, another you know, uh, dialect. But, um, you know, that's interesting you mentioned the nurses because you know, I, I meet a lot of nurses through Isabel because the Filipino community is very closely knit here in Sonoma County. And they are some of the toughest, strongest union supporters um, in the hospitals out here at, at Kaiser and what have you, and in the huh. nursing homes. Huh. So, you know, there's a there's a link between all of these things. I mean, I recently read wrote a piece on um, Filipino farm labor that really forged the United Farm Workers That's many, right. many years earlier That's in the right. 30s. Um, you know, and, and it all seems to, it all ties together. I mean, I spent 13 years in the UAW in auto plant in, in, in Wisconsin until, you know, America deindustrialized. Um, and that's what I wrote the book about was really that experience. So it's a really apropos book for your listeners uh, if they're interested. If they go to my website, jonathanmelrod.com, they can get it for 40% off. Um, but, you know, I want to say one other thing. When you talk about you hope there's a new younger generation, I'm working with, I'm working with an organizers at, at Starbucks, at, at Trader Joe's, at, 4C, at uh, New Seasons Markets in Port Portland, 
all of which are new young people organizing. And they have a vision. They're, they're, they have more of a vision than we had when we went in. You know, I mean, they really see this as a, they want to change the world. The union isn't just about punching in and out. Like somebody was saying earlier, you don't start your day when you punch in. You got to get there and there's a lot that happens. And, you know, that's that's exactly the way these young organizers are looking at it. So I think hey, we've Jonathan, got a lot to look forward to. Jonathan, come to D.C. We started an organizing campaign at George Washington University Hospital, and most of the nurses are younger. They're fired up. They're, they're taking over the control of the union organizing. I'm there as a support support and give them legal support, but they're writing the flyers. They're passing things out around their members. They're they're really doing the control. And Chris, if you don't mind, if people want to go to get more information about that campaign, you can go to our website, dcna.org, and then join, if you're on Instagram, join uh, um, GWUH nurses and uh follow us because uh these jonathan you are so right and chris and i know this because we've interviewed a number of people in starbucks i think there is a sea change in organizing and late in the labor movement and i think the sea change is being driven by young people but also some older people are going ah it's about time i've been feeling this for years and now i'm ready to join too so i just wanted to point that out chris Jonathan, uh, just a, a final question to you, and I'm thinking about what you guys, all, all your Chuck and, and Ed and Jonathan talking about this. Uh, I'm reminded that I was on a, a rally uh, with some uh, young folks who have organized a union at Defenders of Wildlife. I don't think one of, any of them were over, you know, 30 at the most. Um, right. uh, much, much hipper than, I mean, they had costumes, they had, they had music. I mean, it was, it, this was not your standard, you know, <laughs> picket line that, that we've been walking. Um, but, but Jonathan, what, what really impressed me was that these folks knew their labor history also. And I guess I just wanted for the final question, you know, you're, you're writing these books, you're bringing, you know, stories, uh, like this, uh, about brother Fagan out, um, what what's why why are you doing that what what do you think is the importance of that what is what is something you know this is a guy who you know nobody's ever heard of it's from the 1890s you know which you know <laughs> as might as well be the the middle ages you know for americans who have no sense of history what why is it important to you or why is it important to the labor movement today to know the stories about mr fagan well yes uh what you know one of the reasons is he was a laborer and, and he had been beat up and scarred up on picket lines. So, you know, our lineage goes way back. I mean, Knights of Labor, what have you. Um, and, and that's important to keep that alive. You know, sometimes in this country, I feel like we lose memory of what our own history is. You know, we get a history that's imposed on us. So that's one of the things that I find very important in terms of writing. I wanted to inspire a young, younger group of newly minted activists to keep fighting, to understand what can be accomplished. And it's remarkable how many of them have gotten in touch with me based on my book and asked me to help consult with them. One of them called me up the other day, said, I read your book chapter by chapter, I take notes, and then I go back in and use it for our organizing at Starbucks. So to me, there could be nothing better than to hear that, to be honest. 
totally yeah. makes sense to me. Jonathan Melrod, really appreciate bringing this story to us. Great book, uh, or Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. Going to have to have you back on, brother. Thanks so much. I really appreciated it. All right. And you can uh, find that, as he said, let me see if I can find that link. Uh, Jonathan Melrod, that's uh, M-E-L-R-O-D.com. Uh, and it's, it's a really fascinating story. Great book. Um Really appreciate everybody listening today. Thanks, as always, to our engineers, Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman. Driven from the mainland To the heart of the Caribbean We're recording. Um, so Caleb, uh, I guess to get started, uh, you want to tell tell us a little bit about your journey, um, to studying history, labor history. Um, yeah, just how, how did you, how have you made your way to this point? Oh wow! As far as history overall, so I started with my actual bachelor's in social science education at Delta State University. I graduated from there in 2014. Um, in, almost immediately after I graduated in fall of 14, I began teaching U.S. history, um, 1877 to the present in uh, Clinton High School in Clinton, Mississippi, January. And I also started my master's program at Jackson State at the time as well. Um, so um, I started the crux of my archival experience that began in the Mario Walker uh, National Research Center at Jackson State, um, looking at, you know, cheap, cheap available in the first Black Studies Institutes um, that is very little cited. Um, we're looking at the historiography of Black Studies and the Black Freedom Movement. Um, so a lot of my hardcore historical um, drive developed from Jackson State, being in the archives, working as a research assistant um, during the summers when I wasn't actually teaching in the classroom. And, you know, as I taught history on the grade school level, I love the students. I love the experience, the early professionalism um, and mentorship that I gained from Clinton High School. Um, but I wanted more academic freedom. I wanted more research um, ability within a job role. Um, I wanted you know, more liberalism within coursework um, because a lot of, you know, a lot of state tests, uh, curriculum content, um, you know, portfolios require you to focus on, you know, areas of history, which is more so political rather than grassroots or ground level. Um, so I would really want to study that bottom up history. So roughly uh, after teaching there for two and a half, three years, I began to apply for a PhD program. I took a year off and I chose Tulane. Well, Tulane, Tulane chose me. So you said you started off on this like bottom up history. So did you, going into this, did you know that you were going to study labor history? No. So this, my dissertation topic, I like to say that it wasn't a mistake, but I had no intention on finding 20 plus boxes of one of the longest employment labor uh, discrimination cases in Louisiana. So in 2018, uh, my advisor, Professor Jenna Lippman, 
I was taking taking a labor history course and she was like, hey, go go to the Amistad Research Center and see um, what unprocessed, what new documents do they have and see what you can make of them. Um, so I went to the archives and they had just finished pro uh, processing that Parson versus Kaiser collection, um, as well as the George Williams versus New Orleans Steamship Association connect, uh, collection, which is also a vital part of my dissertation. So I began looking, I mean, you know, I told her, I said, you know, I found this, this, this great employment discrimination lawsuit uh, case that, you know, took almost 20 years to solve. Um, and right when the black workers win, you know, we have the economic recession basically crushing their dreams for promotions. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, she, she gave me recommendations, Judith Stein, Timothy Minchin, um, Nancy McLean as, you know, to, to give me a historiographical framework um, to work with um, while, you know, analyzing those documents. And it, it just really took off from there, um, took off from there. And, you know, I, basically one of my, I guess you say, problems or early concerns was how do I frame this story? And that's where the shop floor comes in. So I want to tell a story of Black workers um, and how they struggled with the cumbersome nature of Title VII. Um, but from their perspective, oftentimes we, we, we see, you know, the, the, the court cases being analyzed, but I want to really look at how black workers struggled with government agencies throughout the process to get to those uh, precedental landmark decisions. So digging deeply more into this case, specifically Harris v. Kaiser, um, who was Harris Parsons? And uh, why did he file a, last, a lawsuit against uh, Kaiser Aluminum and Chemical in Chalmette, Louisiana? Okay. So Harris Parson was an uptown, was a native of the uptown district of New Orleans. Um, he was a Korean War veteran. Um, and shortly after coming home from the Korean War, he was honest, honorably discharged as staff sergeant. Um, but shortly after coming home from the Korean War, he began working at Kaiser just two years after the plant was established in 1951. Um, he worked several non-supervisory hourly low-wage jobs. Um, typically, Kaiser, like many Southern industries of the time, being Black workers to the shop floor um, um, with two separate, you know, seniority lines, progression lines. Um, and so for roughly his first almost 10 years or more. Um, he worked jobs. He got a lot of departmental transfers, but never could get that supervisory position or promotion that he wanted in 1966. He filed a complaint with the EEOC. Um, and shortly after, you know, the black workers that he was leading inside the plans for the labor campaign filed EEOC complaints also. Um, so the thing about it, he 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 was not a well-known state or public, you know, figure at the time. He was just a regular gun-toned union man um, that wanted a promotion. Yeah. So I guess the plant. Um, this isn't just like a local plant. This isn't a small plant, right? Like, I mean, what can you talk about the Kaiser plant? You know, at the time of the lawsuit and not just its size and location, but also its impact on the local economy and the regional economy. Like it, it was, it wasn't just a small plant, right? 
Oh no, it was a small plant. Uh, this this aluminum reduction plant um, was amongst the largest um, in the nation and in the world um, at the time, um, with government contracts due to a low aluminum supply from the Korean War. Um, so, this plant roughly you know twenty three thousand workers, roughly twenty percent of them were African American. When it came to Louisiana, um, you know. One of the senators in 1951 at the um, the groundbreaking ceremony uh, called it one of the biggest booms in the state's history. Big boom in the state's history. And at the time, we see Kaiser um, expanding throughout the South. Um, you see uh, plants in Bay Minot, um, Louisiana, you, I mean, Bay Minot, Alabama, excuse me. Um, we see the first actual Kaiser plants in Baton Rouge. Um, and the third is actually in Gramercy, where we see the famous reverse discrimination case with Weber versus Steelworkers there. So, um, you know, th th this plant's significance within the overall Kaiser empire um, really pushes the state forward uh, economically. Um, it's one of the state's leading industries. Um, however, a lot of that, you know, the profits of, you know, black workers don't don't get any of that clout. But I think one, one of the things that's most fascinating about your work is that it's very much a local story in terms of specific plants. But it shows how a specific plant is much part, much part of a more global story, really. I mean, how, you know, deindustrialization, you know, I mean, fast forwarding a little bit, but deindustrialization as it hits the Kaiser plant in Chalmette. It, it's a global phenomenon, right? Like it's because of global economic factors, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. And a lot of, you know, due to the worldwide energy surplus and decline, um, we see the, like I said, Kaiser, um, Crown Zellerbach does, has, has, has a similar, is along the same lines as far as capital moves. But we're looking at Kaiser, you see how, you know, these capital moves in, in quest of fine cheap labor, you see these jobs going away from black workers and more layoffs um, taking place. That's actually almost deferring the dream of civil rights for black workers. Um, you know, we say been on the shop floor so long and by the 1980s, uh, black workers like Kai, uh, black workers like Harris Parson see the shop floor disappear. I mean, Harris Parson never got a promotion. Um, he drove taxis for the rest of his life. Um, so that was, that's the reality of many Black workers depending on the 1964 Civil Rights Act for advancement. And, you know, so I guess, you know, fast forwarding again, but the victory itself here, if you can even call it that, is back pay. Is back pay in the context of deindustrialization and layoffs, is it a victory at all? relative to nothing like why do you i guess why do you call it a hollow, a hollow victory because it's a victory in terms of its judicial nature that was the best that could be done um to remedy um past discrimination at the time um these jobs were gone these jobs were in other countries they were in the caribbean um and so this was the judicial way of correcting past discrimination. There was no other means of doing this. You know, many of the the, the uh, black workers in Harris Parsons class action lawsuit um, no longer worked 
for the company or were constantly within the layoff pool um, at the time. So as far as a victory um, being that they did eventually win the case, um, but hollow in the sense of they never got the promotions that they actually sought, you know, appreciate your time. And I'm glad that we finally got to do this. And, you know, if anything, though, this interview, it's always good to talk about the dissertation. You yeah, know? Seriously, you yeah. And, 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 and I always, you know, the more I talk about it and explain it, I feel like, you know, the more fluid my writing can get. Definitely. Well, it's, it's seriously fascinating work. I'm glad this was finally able to happen. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your work with us. And um, I look forward to seeing how it shapes out. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1987, marking the death of Edgar Daniel Nixon. Nixon's leadership in the struggle for black labor and civil rights spanned decades. He was born in 1899 in Louds County, Alabama. In 1928, Nixon joined A. Philip Randolph's Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Union. The sleeping car porters were the first black-led union to get a charter under the American Federation of Labor. Nixon helped to form the branch of the porters in Montgomery, Alabama. He worked as a Pullman porter until 1964. He became a well-known community leader in Montgomery. In 1955, he helped bail Rosa Parks out of jail after she refused to give up her bus seat in defiance of segregation laws. In the days after her arrest, he helped mobilize the black community to boycott the buses. He invited Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to speak and support the effort. The result was the Montgomery Bus Boycott, one of the most important early actions of the civil rights movement. The 380-day boycott took great personal toll on Nixon. He was arrested and his house was firebombed. But he persevered, helping to bring an end to segregation on public transportation in the city. The boycott gained national attention and helped to launch the civil rights movement. Throughout his life, Nixon served his community as an organizer and activist president of the local chapter of the NAACP, the Montgomery Welfare League, and the Montgomery League of Voters. During World War II, Nixon wrote to First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt calling for the establishment of a USO club for black servicemen. Nixon continued organizing around improving conditions in public housing well into his 80s. Edgar Daniel Nixon was one of many black leaders who served in both the labor movement and the civil rights movement. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our interview with Jonathan Melrod comes from my Your Rights at Work radio show. You can hear that every Thursday, 1 o'clock Eastern Time on WPFW 89.3 FM, the Pacifica Station in Washington, D.C. Special thanks to Alan Weirdak and the Cool Things at the Mini Archives team at the University of Maryland, College Park. 
Our music today was Buffalo Soldier by Bob Marley and the Whalers. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.